Thank you for sticking with us. We're delighted to share the rest of our conversation with David Austin and Brian Mukandi. I loved all the pieces that were mentioned about music. I love Ella Fitzgerald as well, one of my favorite artists from back in the day. But there's such a beautifulness in the way that music can bring people together. It's always spoken about how music is a universal language, right? So a lot of the time when we're at a loss of words or we're at a loss of such connections, for example, during the pandemic, music continues to connect us. I love how it was alluded to, you know, the impact, the absence of live music had during the pandemic. I know that for myself, loving to perform and not being able to have that sort of dialogue with audiences and not being able to express that side of myself as well was a huge shift. Um, when we talk about space and time, being in different spaces in time when witnessing musicians at the National Arts Center here in Ottawa perform in completely virtual contexts, there was a sort of connection that was lost. All the performing at the same time during virtual live performances, when we are not in the same physical space, there is an aspect of this connection that is also lost. There was such powerful conversations that were had today and so much resonated with me. Beautiful. Thanks, Alago. I'd, I'd also add one of the things that sustained me during the pandemic was the release every week of a Radiohead concert from the vaults. So they just released every week a concert. So I'd watch the, the concert kind of in relation to my own time. So I'd start watching the concert while it was light and then wait till it kind of moved into the dark or the, the crepuscular kind of twilight hour. And I felt connected to the audiences, whether they were in Argentina, whether they were in Japan. And I'd never, I mean, when I was in England, I was never a, a huge aficionado of Radiohead. It was, it was seeing how African Americans often wish to assert their cosmopolitanism by saying they liked Radiohead got me into Radiohead, right? So it was like, it was like okay, well, what are people taking from this? And then my appreciation for the reflections around green ecology, around environmentalism, but particularly that release of the concerts during the pandemic as a awareness, as a observation um, that we needed to connect. And here's something they could do to make those concerts freely available um, to, to foster and sustain community. Hmm. Mm hmm. I'm thinking that I want to hear what Sally is thinking. Mm hmm. Yeah, I also really enjoyed the conversation, and um, I'm also reading Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, and I'm thinking about it in the context um, of I am a graduate of architecture, so I am thinking of it in the context of like architectural space and how space 
how kind of memory is hold, held within space, um, especially the parts how in her note on method, she breaks open the archives um, and talks about how she imagined the things that are happening in spaces, because all she has to work off are kind of these documents and um, things that are removing life from the act, from kind of uh, from the experiences, removing the experiences of black people of how they existed in that space. And she had to sit there and imagine how, what, what they were doing in the, in the alleyways and the, and their bedrooms to kind of write this beautiful story. And I was, I guess, curious about whether when you guys are reading these books and, and I also imagine kind of that she probably puts herself in some of these and can see herself in these experiences because there are so many parallels still from um, what was happening in that time and now, um, just in a different context. So I guess I'm curious for when you guys are reading um, the plethora of books that you guys have read um, and listening to music, um, if you see yourself or you kind of expand on the imagination and the stories that are happening in those, um, mm. in what's written or what you're listening uh, to? That's such a great question. You know, it's funny, like, especially at the height of the pandemic, I had, like, two modes of listening. I had days where, like, I just needed, I needed music to, like, just push me along uh, because I just, you know, uh, it was just hard, right? And some days, like, I just... I needed a current to be on my side. And then other days, I spent a lot of time being really quiet or just getting really, really still. And, you know, like Coltrane's got this album, Blue Train, which is my favorite Coltrane album. I think you're supposed to like others, but like Blue Train's my favorite Coltrane album. And the weird thing is my favorite piece on that album is a ballad. It's the only one that he doesn't write. Like I'm old fashioned. And it's this beautiful, beautiful ballad. And it's the one where Coltrane steps right back. And I think Lee Morgan's piece on there is just amazing. And the music to me feels like it just, it's just slowly washing over you, right? Like it's just, I, 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 it, it feels like, like this beautiful, beautiful just drizzle that's gently kind of falling on you. And I play it over and over and over again. And I have a similar experience with For Clifford. Again, it's like another ballad. No, what's it called? Anyway, there's another ballad. I think in memory of Clifford Brown. And I think, I think about pieces of music like that. And one of my favorite, favorite, favorite novels of all time, uh, Bulgakov's Air, the Master and the Margarita, which is just, it's insane. But it's like this flight, this mad like flight that you get taken on. And I think there's some works of art, there's some books, there's some theoretical works where you can kind of sink into it or... Some works make me feel really, really, really light. They make it seem like I dissolve into that work and they carry me to somewhere else. They do it to me like in a really visceral embodied way and they do it to me in like this kind of cognitive way. But you know, Daniel, how you're talking about like, you know, like uh, utopia or imagining other futures or other possibilities. I think for me, the most profound works of art and the most profound theoretical works, they're like magic and they kind of transport and transform. And there's, there's such a joy in that for me. Hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, I can see why you would like that con- 
quatrains. So, about it. I can also see how it fits with your demeanor and personality. Yeah, yeah. No, and I mean that. That's like 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 the kind of meditative and yeah, you know. And and but for some strange reason, I was thinking about um, Johnny T, who plays the violin with Linton Crazy Johnson on the album Things and Times. And there's this poem, which I think is one of Linton Crazy Johnson's best poems, and it's very atypical of his poetry. It's called Story. It's, it's a play on a nursery rhyme. Uh, once upon a time, just like in a nursery rhyme before a piggy turned swine, it's just like play on like these old school nursery rhymes, right? Um, but it's about like your inner soul and making yourself vulnerable, right? Bearing your MAGA chest, as he puts it. And at one point, he just gives way to Johnny T to play the violin. And there's a clip of it online where he's performing. And it's like, uh, I'm not sure, to my students, and they just like, it's just like, they're just stunned. He makes the violin speak and like, and do things that a violin is not supposed to do without the strings breaking, right? It's just incredible. But you feel, it's like this where you feel the sense of agony and like, you know, somebody's heart being twisted and, you know, and you first like, you feel like, oh, your heart being like twist up and tied up and scar up. And you, just, you, know, and you, you hear it in the music. It's just a reminder of what music can do, you know? Um, so, I know a lot of people don't like this novel, um, and a lot of people don't like the novel for the wrong reasons, um, some of which are homophobic, some of which are kind of tied to old Victorian sensibilities around sex, and that's A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James. And the reason why I mentioned it, it wasn't the book I was actually going to mention, I was going to mention um, uh, Nicholas Padura's um, the Man Who Loved Dogs, but I mention this because in that book, Marlon James, who's Jamaican, captures in fiction a historical moment, which was a moment of extreme political violence in Jamaica, in a way that only fiction could do justice to. Linton Kwesi Johnson, among other people, don't like the book, and I think again, tied to certain kinds of sensibility. I'm not saying homophobia, but I mean like, like sensibilities around sex, for example, and like what might appear to be gratuitous sex. But like, I've never read anything that has made me feel that I'm in Jamaica in that moment that's being described, and I'm, and I'm enduring the pain and suffering that people in that, fi in that novel are feeling. And it is historical fiction. And it's partly because it's a place I'm familiar with. It's where I used to you know, spend time with my grandmother. It's like in one of those garrison districts, Jonestown. So, you know, and people might think the, the violence is fantastic and like fantastic in a sense of like unreal. But that's a place, I mean, it's been a long time since I've been to Jamaican. I, and the last time I was there was not in that neighborhood because I don't have family there anymore. But it's a place where you could see, you know, people walking around literally with M16s in their hands. I'm not talking about Somalia. 
right? I'm talking about Jamaica. And Jamaica was in a state of genuine political civil war. But you still had tourism. You could still visit and not see, see that because it was confined largely to garrison districts. Except for during elections, maybe. Um, I couldn't finish that book the first time I started reading. I had to put it down. It was too much because it was too real. When something brings you into that space where you feel like you're in it, right? And I know a lot of people have, that have not been able to finish reading the book. Um, so there are, that's one book that I, you know, I mean, it's a few years now, but when I read it, it did that for me. You know, Robin Kelly's, um, and this is a long time ago, although it feels recent, his book about Thelonious Monk is a beautiful book that I read while listening to Monk over and over as I was reading it and felt I was transposed in terms of time and space. You know, just beautifully written. And uh, it's a big book, it's a long book, but there's no labor involved. You feel like you're just, you know, one of those books that you you read and you don't want to, to end. Um, I've kind of been reading Wayward Lives that way, you know, and even pacing myself because I know it's the kind of book I could choose to sit down and finish it in a night because it's so beautifully written and she's such a great storyteller. The stories are almost like vignettes, right? But um, I think, you know, there are some books that you also have to ponder. You know, and Brian and I, we have this conversation all about like pondering, like, and, you know, what separates philosophy from certain kinds of theorizing, right? It's the pondering, it's the deliberation, right? It's like taking that time and space. It's not taking any ideas or concepts for granted, you know? And you have to read poetry the same way. And that's why there's historically been this relationship between poetry and philosophy, you know, and hence the word philosopher, you know, philosopher poet. Um, it's like the deliberation. And I say that because, like, I mean, there's a fine line, and, and in actual fact, there's probably no line in reality, right? But in terms of how people conceptualize the two, or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe in reality there is a line, but like in conceptually there isn't. Um, you know, yeah, I think, and I don't know, maybe this is not going to sound right, but um, there's a certain kind of empirical thinking, not necessarily just research, but thinking associated with philosophy that is sometimes a bit fleeting when it comes to the way, you know, theorizing has become a thing. You know what I mean? Like literally a thing. So like I'm saying, you know, people have made it into a thing, almost a fetish, like, you know, like because, you know, to call oneself a theorist means something that is very different to say I'm a historian or I'm a this or that although historians do those things too, or people in other disciplines do those things. So, um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think, you know, reading Wayward Lives and not being in a hurry to finish it because it's making me think about that particular moment. And I've been reading it and listening. So, you know, so the other thing, so years ago when I read, um, Angela Davis's book on Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, and Billie Holiday, right? I was listening to all three of them quite a bit. So the moment and period that 
Cynthia Hartman is capturing in Wayward Lives has brought me back to Bessie Smith especially. I've been listening to her incessantly. I feel like I could, I could sing her songs and recount them word, you know. Um, but that's the extent to which she has brought me into that space and made me feel as though I'm sort of almost participating in her story. And you said something, Sally, like, you know, Cydia Hartman is also a participant in her own story, the way she writes that book. She really is. Um, it's quite something. Yeah, it's quite, uh, I mean, that's a gift that she has. Um, you know, I wasn't, I mean, I've always loved her writing, but I think um, her book, obviously not Scenes of Subjection, which is brilliant, but um, Lose Your Mother, like, there's a lot of really interesting things. But I thought there was a moment, you know, which goes back to something we were talking about earlier, where I realized that um, there is such a thing as an American perspective, even on the, on the African continent and on the world, that some African Americans share. And what is it I'm trying to say? Sometimes that perspective is hmm, somewhat hegemonic. Sometimes, which means that it brings to bear certain assumptions. Now, what I like about Lose Your Mother, actually, if we're being fair, is that like there's a level of self-reflexivity about some of those assumptions. Right? They're not taken for granted, right? Um, and I think that's actually the best we can do, right? Um, given, you know, we work with the tools that we have at our disposal and we're all socialized and shaped into kind of seeing and understanding the world in, in certain kinds of ways. And, um, uh, yeah, and I think diasporic people have it and you know including canadian diasporic people have a tendency to romanticize the african continent and then as a result when they do visit are often shocked even traumatized by their their experiences i think it's a little bit different if you've had some experience in the caribbean i think so so like when i visited whether it be cape town or or johannesburg or wherever and like you know i you know and particularly Soweto, like I, it feels like sometimes being in Jonestown, right? But I think if we've only had a North American experience, right? And we travel to some place that's so far removed from that, um, it, it, it warrants like a different kind of conceptual framework and using a different set of tools and a, tools and a different set of um, different approach and attitude, right? Where you kind of try to, as much as it's possible, appreciate a place on its own terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I'd say about Lose Your Mother uh, and all of Sadie Hartman's work is like, it's profoundly honest. I struggle sometimes with some of the places she lands, but it's profoundly honest. And you know, like I have a interesting relationship with Marie Conde, not, like not in real life, but like in terms of her work, I wish I had a relationship with her. She's amazing. 
I struggle, you know, like I struggle with some of her work, but like, you know, her novel Segu, for example, I think is one of the best pieces of work on pre-colonial Africa that's been written. I mean, she's brutal in her judgment, painfully so sometimes, but uh, it's brilliant, right? But one of the, you know, like I, one of her autobiographies, the title I think is Mavi Sanfad, My Life Without Makeup. And there's something in that, right? Like uh, for me, when I think about worthwhile scholarship, you know, and worthwhile art. I think it's captured in that, in that idea of my life without makeup. There's a profound honesty to it. So, you know, like when Hartman writes, whatever it is that she writes, there is there are treasures in there. There are riches. There's so much to think with and so much to grapple with. And you're rewarded for spending time with her because it's profoundly honest. It's a profoundly honest attempt to grapple with something, however she goes about doing that. So it's like it's just incredibly, incredibly, incredibly rewarding. There's a a tendency that I worry about, particularly in, in, in black studies, of, you know, for people uh, who are often denigrated, who are often not kind of given the accord that they deserve, there's a kind of overcompensation, sometimes too much of a concern with a particular kind of presentation at the cost of the content. And, you know, one of, one of the ways that manifests is a sense that you're supposed to be aligned with social movements if you're not yourself an organizer while being an academic. And so there's a kind of a language of the streets and a language of organization, you know. There's a kind of, there's a set of political dogmas that people repeat. They are the things that uh, more senior and more successful academics say that people kind of like will repeat and will cite. They're people whose work is brilliant, but incredibly dense and incredibly difficult, who are cited a lot. And my suspicion is they're cited not because folks have grappled with their work and have come to some position on it, but because at best, the most generous thing I can say is like they're tipping their hat to this person because that's what you do. And in the same way that like there's a lot, a lot, a lot of kind of poppy music that's formulaic uh, and does well commercially but doesn't feed my soul necessarily. I don't know. I think as a community, as a community of scholars, as a community of scholars engaging with communities of artists, I think we have a responsibility to call on each other uh, to to honesty, you know, that the work that we do uh, is real and is honest. One of my favorite filmmakers, uh, Hali J uh, Jarima, uh, one of my favorite, favorite filmmakers, he's from Ethiopia, he's based in, in Washington, D.C. now. Uh, he says about his film, there's a Greg Tate interview with him where he says about his films, he's like, look, they're not perfect, but they're trying to say something. when we stop trying to say something and it's just a pose that it's no longer worthwhile and it can't be of service, right? It doesn't matter how imperfect it is if it's genuinely trying to say something. So again, like, I mean, I, you know, like reading Lose Your Mother, there's times I'm like, whoa, shots fired. Uh, but Saidiya Hartman is saying something and she's trying to say something and she's trying to get some, to get to something. And Lose Your Mother feeds me, even if it's a bitter pill to swallow in places.
it, there's a whole bunch of work. Honestly, and I mean no disrespect, but there's a whole bunch of work, I think, where understandably folks are trying really, really, really hard to make a place for themselves, but at the cost of saying something. And it's so many layers of makeup that, like, it disfigures. I love those reflections around how so many people are well-known without being well-read. I love the reflections that bring us back to David's comments around your humility, Brian, and how that works within and against structures where there is so much self-aggrandizement. David spoke to it in terms of what it is to pop one's chest out or to perform like a peacock and say one is a theorist. My antenna goes off when I read in a text what I am calling this particular theory which I will use to announce myself on or within the academic marketplace. But I'm wondering if we could maybe, I I love how you're, you're reflecting on this in relation to honesty. But I'm wondering if we could also relate it to something you mentioned earlier about seriousness. And that is to say, you describe David as, I'm paraphrasing, but along the lines of one of the people who takes most seriously what it means to imagine and build an intellectual life. And I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more in terms of saying, not just as you did so eloquently speak to what it is to be authentic in one's writing. What does it mean for you to call someone or to describe someone or to see someone take the life of the mind seriously? Okay, Uh, that's a great question. You know, I've just been writing about education and Googie's kind of like conception of education, right? Like... And one of the things that comes from that, uh, one of the things I land on is the fact that almost by definition, it's dialogic and dialectical, but also dialogical. Like we learn from and we're acculturated into. And so for me, you know, like a preoccupation has always been like, who do I allow myself to learn from? Into what am I willing to allow myself to be transformed? Because... Like, you know, lesson that you learn from childhood, right? Be careful who you play with because show me your friends and I'll show you what you're going to become. And it's true, right? It's, it's even more profound with your teachers. I, I haven't had many actual teachers. There have been people who've been assigned teachers for me, but, I've, but my actual teachers I have chosen myself. I, you know, like, I'm, I'm a student of David's. It's going to get all weird about it, but whatever. Like, you know, like, I'm deliberately, like, like a student in a absolutely like his friend but like in a really profound way like actively learn from and consciously learn from and the and and the reason is like yeah I, I cannot think of a more serious scholar and what that means is we say it we say like education matters we say the stuff matters that ideas matter but you don't always get the sense that people actually believe it because of the kinds of choices they make and the things that they do right If you actually believe that ideas matter, if you actually believe that there's a relationship between how most people make sense of the world and the kind of social, political structures that will manifest, the kinds of institutions that we have, uh, and what passes for conventional wisdom, then there's a kind of investment that you'll make in those ideas and the dissemination of those ideas. You know, 
there's a whole bunch of different choices that David could have made. There's a bunch of institutional decisions and choices he could have made. There's decision choices around who published his books that he could have made. There's decisions and choices about what books he wrote that he could have made. And instead, he has relentlessly pursued the question of what does freedom look like? How do we get to freedom? What does a more just society looks like? look like? I'm a philosopher uh, with expertise in applied ethics. Uh, I am preoccupied with the question of justice and how we get to a more just world and a more just society. And so much of the philosophic work on these things are people, people trademarking ideas for the sake of trademarking those ideas, right? Or marking kind of intellectual territory or engaged in this game where they write stuff and others respond to and so on and so forth. But you don't get the sense that people are grappling with how do these ideas, what sort of possibilities do these ideas open up? How do they impact on the day-to-day life of of those that are Sephardians called the sufferers, you know, eh, of the people, if an uncle, the condemned of the world? And yeah, um, I mean... My first, you know, like I started working as a doctor uh, in a resource poor sub-Saharan African context at the peak of the AIDS pandemic when we didn't have antiretroviral drugs in the hospital, in the public sector, right? Like when I went to work every day, uh, I signed people's death certificates. And the correlation between how the world is understood and how social structures are set up and the impact in terms of the health and the livelihood and the outcomes of of particularly poor folk is something that's always been front and center to me. My academic career has been a pursuit of how, you know, what kinds of thinking, what kinds of ideas can help us get to a point where people who are currently doing it really, really tough, like leading really difficult lives, that things can be more just. And, and, and for me, like David's a model in terms of work that, that's cognizant of the life and death kind of consequences of the ideas that circulate in the world and whose commitment to grappling with those ideas, whose commitment to a kind of conceptual clarity, whose commitment to, to teaching and to disseminating those ideas. Um, like it permeates uh, all of his books, uh, the you know, and the work that he does in the classroom, um, and just the person that he is as a member of a community in relation with others, and and I think, and so yeah, so for me, like you know, like he's a model of a really really serious philosopher, a really serious scholar. Um, and someone for whom intellectual work is a vocation, like a sacred vocation. And, and I think that's something we should, you know, yeah, um, that, that's something we should all attempt to emulate, I think. <laughs> I told you, I told you you'd be getting all, like, all uncomfortable and stuff, right? I called... <laughs> Man does not know what to do with himself. <laughs> but it's true. Okay, so let, let me... Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. 
Hmm. Okay, so... So when we began this conversation, right? We shared how we've encountered each other. And... um, I also, I think, mentioned... You know, two people. One is Adrian Hayward, who Daniel, you know quite well, and the other one is Mariam Kaba, right? and we've known each other since the early '90s and went to school together. And um, is one of the people as I, that I count as a, you know, a dear and trusted friend, as is Adrian. Um, Richard Eiden was another one of those people. You know, we used to do a radio program together. Um, we were friends. Um, and um, he was another one of those people who appreciated the importance of thinking on his own terms, but as a kind of, not just precursor, but being in kind of symbiosis of how we live and move and act in the world. And he spent a good portion of his life trying to to create a conceptual space for us to imagine what freedom might look like. You know, we can think of the word fantastic as a kind of utopia, to go back to the word that you used, Daniel. Um, now, Brian, you know that, like... <laughs> Well, first of all, yeah, as much as I appreciate those kind things that you said, like, you know, you and I have been in, in a dialogue, in an exchange. And I know sometimes you would like to <laughs> give it the appearance of it being one-sided, but it clearly is not. And, um, you know... It's not a joke when, you know, in the absence of a certain kind of conversation or conversations, we're lesser human beings. And there's a dearth of certain kinds of conversations, right? And I've been able to have, you're amongst the people I can count on to be able to have those kinds of conversations. And that's not something I take for granted. I want to also say that in addition to the people that I've mentioned, you know, I've been very fortunate. I moved to Montreal, back to Montreal, you could say it away, because I went to elementary school here for a couple of years, and encountered people who had lived a particular political experience, but were also these thinking beings. And... Some of them were academics, and some of them were not. You know, Robert Hill is Professor Emeritus emeritus at UCLA. Hands down, one of the most, how do I want to put this, um, one of the most brilliant people I've ever encountered. He's a philosopher theorist disguised as a historian. Absolutely. You know, 
Alfie Roberts, you know, who worked for a steel plant. Steel company. Sidbeck Steel. You know, these folks were Franklin Harvey. These folks were, you know, mentored, taught in very direct ways. I don't mean just like you know, from a distance by C.L.R. James, but had the audacity as kids pretty much to challenge him to. You know, that's who these folks were. So I think I've been privileged in that sense that in each step of the way in my own personal life, I've encountered people who in one form or another force me to think and push me and force me to ask questions. Like in Third World Bookstore on Bathurst Street in the late 80s, early 90s when I was still in high school and shortly after. You know, when we were banding about ideas, you know, and, you know, sometimes posturing because we just read something and, you know, we had the science. There was Mr. Johnson who owned the bookstore. And I now realize it was out of respect. Who would tell us if we were talking nonsense? And sometimes in not, in not as nice terms as I just put it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, <laughs> to be very honest, you know, again, going back to our conversations and conversations that, you know, with that, you know, it's a small group of people, really. And I think about, like, of course, there are others, like when we were, you know, we had a small group that was reading Sylvia Winter and, like, you know, there are, you know, friends who are also intellectuals and or academics. I mean, you know, Alyssa Trotz is one of them. You know, Aaron Kamagisha is another. Um, Deb Cowan, among others. Um, I mentioned Melanie Newton after. Some of these folks I've known, like, pretty much my entire adult life. Some of them, not all of them, you know. Um, and some of them, on and off, we've been having these conversations on and off. And I think in some instances, not as often as we should be. And I think that we, yeah, I think that it's easy to take for granted what we collectively do and the space that it affords us. And we don't all do what we do the same way and in the same places or even the same kinds of places. But we, in the end, we earn a living teaching and thinking, and the two things are also in symbiosis. Like, I don't think, for, I mean, definitely for the Linton Crazy Johnson book, Dread Poetry and Freedom, if I hadn't been teaching his poetry, it would be a different book. Because I was forced to think about what I was teaching, right? And uh, really think about it, because I had to convey it to my, to my students. So I'm very thankful for the students that, especially the first time I taught his poetry, I had to endure my ramblings and everything else that was involved but you know but my point is that like we need that kind of engagement as the very thing it's so ironic that you know you can do a circuit on conferences and all kinds of and still not find a certain kind of real engagement it's you know what i mean and i see you know daniel's shaking his head because yeah i mean a certain kind of real quote unquote quote authentic 
genuine engagement that's not tied to some form of advancement right that's not tied to like any particular set of ideas that are in vogue and then may shift to something else down the road but beneath all of that and you know speaking with brian no, because I've been reading philosophical texts since I was quite young. But speaking with Brian, I've been forced to think about what philosophy does that makes it that discipline, um, potentially, right? Or what philosophizing does. I mean, it's a better way because it's not just tied to the discipline, right? Um, that allows us to kind of step outside of our day-to-day -day reality, right? Even sometimes almost dispassionately, which is a gift that C.L.R. James had and something he shares with Hannah Arendt, right? It's almost like cold that C.L.R. James could say what he says and as insensitive as it sounds about um, G.W. Griffith, G Griffith, sorry, birth of a nation, right? There's parts of it, like, I still find, like, you know, Brian knows this, like, it's a bit troubling, right? But it's also, it tells you a great deal about, like, what's involved in this work. It can't just be about our emotions, a certain kind of, like, emotive response. I mean, like, that's a human response, perhaps, right? But, like, um, something else is required of us when we're doing this, I think. And um, I think, you know, this kind of work can and not even can, it should. Like in an ideal world, ideas are just ideas. But like, we're living in this world. And look where this world is, is going. You know, I'm not weighing it on one side or the other, but I was listening to, because I was watching, I was Jazeera earlier today, and listening to um, Vladimir Putin, his speech. And it was just so interesting, because I now understand, I think, wherever this is going to go, what was involved, like when James, for example, is writing in 1937, 1936, and the Second World War begins in 1939, and he's writing about its imminence. And like the whole world is watching things unfold, but there's nothing going to stop what's going to happen. I think I now understand that a bit better, right? Because where this is potentially going, there's no, you know, um, is in that direction. And it's a series of processes in motion, motion, right? That take on a logic of their own, and then it becomes beyond human agency. Um, my question, though, my point is, what do we as intellectuals, and I'm going to say especially as black intellectuals, have to say about this moment, and not only in relation to our experience within this moment, but what that contributes to our collective understanding of our humanity and human freedom. And you see, I think we have forgotten that historically, that's the role that we have played. Right? that black thought, quote-unquote, has never only been just about black people because it's been so fundamental at various points in history, right, to 
the understanding and expression of freedom that's profoundly touched everybody. And so I feel as though we've arrived at a point in which we don't have to be assigned to this circumscribed space because we choose to stay in that lane ourselves. And that is tragic. And if I could just add to that, yeah, you know, you know, there's a temptation that, you know, like people allowing themselves to stay in a particular kind of lane. I think the idea of, say, Afro-pessimism is incredibly seductive. And I understand why it's incredibly seductive. I understand the affective, the emotional work that it can do. I understand the sense of affirmation that can come with it. But if you take seriously the idea that you're consigned to some sort of social death, if you take seriously the idea that by virtue of being black, we are qualitatively, ontologically different uh, from everybody else and they're separate, then I don't know how you can consistently hold that uh, we have something to say in the world about the shape of the world, about the direction of the world, about the place the world is going. And given the outsized role that black folk have played in speaking to the material, the social, the economic, the political conditions of the world, to cede all of that for something that feels comforting is, I think it's worse than tragic, right? Like, I, if you're a scholar, if you have the privilege of of dedicating your days to reading, writing, thinking, and teaching, if that therefore means that there's a kind of credentialing that you're given and an ability to weigh in on the governance of the world, weigh in on where things are and things are going, and if your choice of how to weigh in is to say that you are structurally unable to weigh in while weighing in. You know, and as bad as I think that is in and of itself, the reproduction of that, the, the then younger folks, the then students who come up and think like, yes, this resonates because it feels good and affirming. You know, I just think the damage, the, I, I th again, I think about Fanon saying like, you know, like I have this chest, I have this chest that can expand to infinity. And when black scholars' response to that is to say, actually, no, I'm going to be a better Fanonian than Fanon, and I'm going to say, like, actually, no. Like, you know, eh, I don't have the potential to act, to weigh in. Eh, I can only be acted upon. Ugh, that's monstrous, I think. Thank you both for joining us. And you both offered us such a large library of things to listen to and to read already. Um, and yeah, David, you mentioned that you're reading Wayward Lives currently, but 
we would like to know what are you guys currently listening to, watching, um, or reading um, as of right now. I have a stack of books in front of me because I knew I was going to forget the names of them. <laughs> because I'm reading multiple things at the same time. Um, one of them is the Open Society and Its Enemies by Karl Popper. Um, maybe I can say more about that after. But uh, Another book... <clears throat> So Brian is co-teaching a, a philosophy course with me. Yeah. Um, well, Brian and I are co-teaching a course, is how I should put it. Um, so one of the things that we've been talking about a lot is that what philosophy is, what it does, but also we've had some conversations on how it comes into being. And a good friend of mine, his name is Albert San Sanchez, who also teaches in the Humanities, Philosophy, Religion Department at John Abbott College, he turned me on to this, I'll just call him a thinker for lack of a better word, named Richard Seifert. And I'm looking at this book here. It's called The Origins of Philosophy in Ancient Greece and Ancient India. And, the, and Ancient India is an important part. And it's this kind of materialist reading of how philosophy came into being as in abstract thinking or a certain conception of philosophy at least, I think that's a better way to put it, and tied to the monetization of India and ancient Greece and how money, coinage, coins especially, as an abstract medium of exchange led to abstract thinking of a certain kind. And it's kind of blow my mind in some ways huh? because it's a uh, um, it's a completely different conception of how philosophy has come into being, which then raises questions about where else did this happen in different historical moments, like he focuses on India. Um, so that's been very interesting. I mentioned Wayward Lives already. So, and I've also been reading, I stumbled across this book. I was doing some research in New York uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I stumbled across these two volumes. I'm going to show you. There's two of them. And this is the, the small volume um, uh, by Jeffrey B. Perry on Hubert Harris. So um, it's like this momentous biography. And Hubert Harris was from the Caribbean, um, moved to Harlem, was one of those kind of like uh, autonomous intellectuals in the early 1900s part of the Harlem Renaissance, one of those thinkers that became an integral part of the Harlem Renaissance. And he's barely talked about. Um, John Jackson, John G. Jackson, who was uh, one of those people I used to read quite a bit when I was uh, younger. I mean, for better or for worse, re refers to him as a, the black Socrates. And, you know, of course, those kinds of descriptions can be and are very problematic in many ways, but it gives you some conception of how he was perceived amongst his peers as this thinking being, right? Um, so, as you know, I've just started. I mean, I mean, I knew about Hubert Harris before, but I've never read anything in depth about him. So I'm enjoying that. The other thing is Angela Davis's autobiography, which I recently read. Um, it's a re-released version by um, Haywood Press. Um, 
I bought it for my daughter, actually, but then decided to read it myself. And, um, you know, partly because there's a part of what I'm writing about right now in relation to C.L.R. James that's tied to the 1970s and thinking about this conception of black power and what that moment meant. Um, and, of course, that's her lived experience, right? And James writes a bit about Angela Davis and George Jackson, and he refers to the two of them on equal terms as philosophers, as thinking beings. Of course, Angela Davis was a trained philosopher who studied with Herbert Marcuse and Adorno for a while, actually, in Germany. Um, George Jackson learned philosophy in prison, right, in solitary confinement. Um, so reading her, including her, you know, our discussion about George Jackson has been insightful. Um, and kind of, you know, you talk about books that bring you into a moment in time and space. Um, this is one of those books because it was written shortly after her, the whole campaign to free her from prison, etc. So it's of that time in, in many ways. Um, I'll go very quickly. I'm just going to share two more. So one is, I just started reading it. So all this conversation, and this is why, you know, when Brian is trying to make it sound like we have this unidirectional relationship. But Brian has me thinking about philosophy and literature, and particularly about Ngugiwatiango. Right? And I'm reading this book, Dreams in a Time of War, by Ngugi. It's kind of biographical, one of his first biographies, I guess. So it's about, yeah, um, or autobiographies, a childhood memoir, as he refers to it. And it's just kind of giving me some insight into Ngugi's mind through his experience. Um, and lastly, so kind of this will kind of strike you as a little bit weird, but again, you know, one of the so for me, CLR James has been a gift in my life, and the reason why I say that is because James was the consummate polymath. He wrote about sports, he wrote about politics, he wrote about philosophy, he wrote about he wrote by about and through history, literary criticism. He was a fiction writer and a player. He was all of these things. Right? And also one of the things that he loved was music. And so he was a big fan of Beethoven. And at one point, I think he even planned to write about Beethoven. Um, so I'm reading this book called Diagnosing the Life and Death of Beethoven. Beethoven, no, Diagnosing Genius, sorry, The Life and Death of Beethoven by Francois-Martin Maïs, published here in Canada. Now, the reason why I'm reading it is not just because I'm curious about Beethoven in relation to James, but I'm curious about Beethoven who struggled with struggled with health issues, including mental health issues. You know, and there's a great deal that's written about kind of mental health, manic depression, and creativity. One of the things I learned about CLR James that kind of stunned me when I heard it for the first time, and then other folks confirmed it. I've never seen it written about anywhere. Is that it's possible and i'm you know just to kind of save myself some grief i'm going to say according to robert hill who is clr james's literary executor on his word he says that james was probably bipolar why is that significant because you see him representing that bipolarity or at least dealing with depression in some of his letters where he talks about dealing with his demons letters to Constance Webb. But in writing about his demons, sometimes in the same letter, he's writing with a sense of exhilaration and enthusiasm 
as if he's in a moment of mania, right? That doesn't explain his genius. It can just like, you know, I mean, so to reduce Beethoven or Nina Simone or various other people who've been associated with being bipolar or some other kind of, right? It's not that. But it does tell us something about, you know, notes on dialectics, you know, which is like James's study of Hegel or writing through Hegel to make an argument about what freedom, what this thing called socialism might mean, was written in, you know, I mean, given the kind of text it is, like it was written in like, I don't know, maybe a couple of months. And there are moments where he's describing his writing process. He's just writing through, you know, no sleep, just writing and writing and writing and thinking. And I'm, I'm like actually quoting him. I'm writing and writing and writing and thinking and thinking and thinking. You talk about the people think around him think he's mad, right? But it sounds like in retrospect, he's writing through one of those manic moments, right? So reading about other people that maybe, you know, like were afflicted with mania or, you know, some variant, right? It's kind of been insightful. Um, so I've been more attuned to that since I learned that from Bobby Hill. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's my long short list in this particular moment. <laughs> yeah, I've got books kind of strewn all over the place. I'm, you know, working on a book on Googie. So all of those kind of just basically all of his works made them made their way with me over here so you know my luggage bill was but that's okay uh, so reading you know going over and over and over on googie's works but over and above that uh, i'm reading like george lamming uh, here's this reader and because lamming is really 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 important on googie in the castle of my skin you know there's a shift and you see it you know the first you know googie's first couple of books he's going in a particular kind of direction the river between and weep not child and in the castle of my skin, yeah. Later on, Googie would write like a homecoming, this, uh, these critical works. And he's like, when I discovered, you know, when I came across uh, Caribbean writers, I felt like I was coming home. Um, and he's like, you know, like he was like, there's this other tradition, but it's one that he felt like he had a share in. Um, and it, it shifts, it shifts his writing, it shifts his thinking. Um, and I don't know, I don't think that you can have a really good grasp on Googie's works and his kind of trajectory without a good grasp on, on Lamming. So there's that. Uh, I'm currently in Montreal uh, and, uh, you know, uh, David uh, very kindly introduced me to the hanging of, I thought Cooper's The Hanging of Angelique, which is just a glorious book. Um, it's it's genre defying uh, you know if someone put a gun to my head i might call to work off political economy with a biographical focus or something like that uh, it's just very 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 clever and i'm so grateful for this work because my understanding of quebec uh, this this book uh, shapes uh, my understanding of quebec and my understanding of canada um it's just, yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. Uh, do you know, this is almost unfair to say. Uh, I almost feel bad, but I finally, it's taken me a very long time, 
but I finally got my hands uh, on a hard copy of Notes and Dialectics. I'm I'm giddy. Where did you find that? You didn't even <laughs> tell me that. Uh, wow. It's it's this is because it arrived yesterday. Mm. Uh, it arrived. I, I, you know, I, I saw it last night. Did cartwheels, uh, but yes, I stumbled across Notes and Dialectics. I've been looking for a hard copy of this book for, for, for a couple of years now. Uh, so I, I finally have it. It's cherished, very cherished. That's funny. You probably paid a lot of money for that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into that. <laughs> Suffice to say, and wow. uh, this was. This was a gift uh, from David. Uh, and it's like, you know, like sometimes we're like, I think, I think you'll find this useful. Uh, read it. Um, and I haven't in the last couple of weeks, but I need to get back into it. Uh, I started this thing when I'm on the metro, like, you know, when I'm on the subway. Uh, I'll just open this book up and I'll read. It's a collection of short stories. I normally hate short stories. Like, I don't know, like maybe it's because I'm long-winded by nature. I like long, long things, but they are gorgeous like they are so clever they are so beautiful <sighs> you know one of the things at some point at some point i think i'm going to write a book on literature and philosophy um i really struggle to say where the line between the two is and what separates them right um and i think part of the reason is i think there are people who think the philosophical is can only be that cognitive conceptual stuff. And I think the cognitive conceptual stuff is important, but so is the effective embodied things, right? Like ideas don't just do things, you know, it's, it's just, and it's dumb and reductive to do this dualistic thing. But like, even if you buy into that mind-body dualism, ideas don't just operate on the level of, of cognition, of mind right like ideas also operate at this visceral thing like you know like ideas literally kind of move or repel and Zadie Smith for me is like profoundly philosophic uh, her work at the same time simultaneously is incredibly cognitively thought-provoking um, and also deeply 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 moving at exactly the same time. Um, and and she does this in these brief stories, right? She somehow accomplishes this, you know, she's like a magician. She somehow accomplishes this magic in, in, in these brief, brief stories. And so, like, yeah, uh, I, you know, like, I, <laughs> I, I, I feel like uh, she's, I've come to think of her as David's close friend, uh, and it's really nice kind of getting to spend time with his friend. <laughs> Right, so we started with the story around being part of a conversation that opened up new possibilities, that also led to physical sickness, that disrupted the mind-body dualism, right? And then to end it with thinking about Zadie Smith and how these short stories can be engaged with outside of the contemplative state, but also refusing a mind-body split. Uh, that's, a, that's a really nice connection. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, David. Just before you do that, can I just say yeah, thank you to you, Daniel, Sally, and Alador. Thank you. Yeah, this has been, you know, yeah, we don't have these kinds of conversations in this kind of spirit very often. That is the unfortunate truth. And being afforded the time and space to have just 
this kind of conversation, which will then be shared with other people. I think it shouldn't be a luxury, but it's something that I, I have to say is appreciated. What an amazing conversation that was. I love how much support and admiration that David and Brian had for each other. And that really spoke volumes in the way that the conversation unfolded. I also love these types of conversations that feel like they can just go on forever. And I think that's just a really lovely way to end the season. This episode is also Alador and I's final episode producing and editing the Black Studies podcast. It was such an amazing journey working with you both, learning and expanding my understanding of the Black Studies through our conversations, both on the podcast and behind the scenes. Thank you, Alador, for coming in and supporting and bringing forward all your creative ideas. And thank you, Daniel, for creating space that was open and safe for us to bring forward and explore our personal curiosities and interests. The way that you made space for us to learn as we went and the care and support you gave us as we coordinated all the moving parts of this production is something that I hope to carry and adopt in my future endeavors. I'm so grateful to have shared space with you both and so many other brilliant scholars, artists, and activists, and I'm excited to see what's in store for the next season. What about you, Alador? What are some of your final reflections? Oh, where to begin? Words can describe how much I've learned and absorbed during the entirety of season one. The process has truly been incredible alongside Sally. I thank Daniel for inviting me into these spaces to both contribute to the discussion and work on delivering thoughts by Black scholars from around the world in various forms. I've gained a great appreciation for the way in which, you know, different fields of research connect and can come together to strengthen our understanding of Blackness, which has been applicable to so many facets of my life. As someone who is incredibly interested in healthcare equity and classical music education accessibility, having a stronger understanding of institutional racism and barriers faced by Black individuals, both with within academia and various spaces has exposed me to develop a stronger understanding of these topics. Through it all, I have been quite inspired by the conversations that have taken place thus far. The level of poise and humility these scholars brought to each space was both admirable and sparked the possibility of leveling from one another, um, from one another's experiences. And throughout season one, I observed Black academics from around the world come together to see connections carry through over time. And the networks of Black academics with such collaboration that takes place both in their work and pathways in life was quite pivotal for me to see firsthand. In one episode specifically, one of the scholars brought on, Tarya Jari, had a connection to a professor at the institution I attend expressing his appreciation for her, which inspired me to take a new course developed at McMaster, talked by Dr. Ingrid Waltron, which has honestly been one of the most impactful classes I've taken thus far. The connections that transcend beyond these spaces of academia can be incredibly powerful. As a classical musician, a lot of the music that stems from Black influences, whether it be Afro-influences, etc., typically is not analyzed with the same level of care and thought throughout my music education in comparison to any other genre, truly. Um, and oftentimes it's given a blind eye, but for me as a Black individual, I've always listened to and appreciated versatility within music, more so in social contexts and for the sense of enjoyment. However, through this podcast, I've gained a greater appreciation and understanding that all music can have its nuanced intricacies, um, which deserve the same level of care and thought. Through putting together the Black 
Blacklist playlist, which encompassed songs of sorrow and joy selected by guests on the Black Studies podcast, I was given the opportunity to work on my analysis, appreciation, and deeper thoughts regarding several distinct musical types, specifically lyricism within rap music, which was mentioned in the episode with Dr. Denvier and Dr. Francesca, Black Music and the Historian's Craft, speaking about the history of hip-hop culture and rap music. Lyricism within rap music is so much more than what it is and what it has been labeled as. It conveyed such a deep story. As Dr. Francesca states, Black rappers transformed their dispositions of power. Through this, I've been able to connect it to stories that hold greater value um, and great value um, in academia. For instance, Dr. Daniel's book, Thinking While Black, which highlights Black thinkers. These important cultural elements to blackness and bringing it into the world of academia so we can appreciate the brilliant ideas, works, and intricacies of what is blackness. Finally, bringing black academics together and their intellectual conversations to the wider public ear throughout through the form of podcast was a wonderful experience for the reason that podcasts are now a growing field. Through podcast making, as someone who loves to make content information accessible to the public, I've gained such a deep appreciation for the power podcasts can hold for knowledge translation. It excites me to see the possibilities to be able to use these sorts of mediums in my future works. To end off, I would like to emphasize my appreciation for Dr. Daniel to have brought me into these conversations over the past eight months, which have fostered such fruitful learning opportunities and have allowed me to apply myself in unparalleled ways. Um, I'm looking forward to listening in to season two and encourage everyone to spark conversations surrounding topics mentioned in the podcast in your day-to-day lives. Thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, Alador. It's been a tremendous pleasure to work with you on the podcast. Thank you for all of your amazing work. Thank you for the editing that you've done. Thank you for the tremendous work that you've done in relation to developing intriguing trailers that communicate the richness of the conversations that we've had about Black life, livingness, and culture. Thank you for the social media posts that you've developed to communicate the nuances of Black communities and to help make them legible, audible, and visible to diverse audiences. So while Sally and Alador sadly say goodbye at the end of season one and this holiday special, we encourage our listeners to check out our reading lists, check out our playlists on Instagram and on Spotify, and to keep exploring more on our Instagram and Linktree, where we have the handle Black Studies Podcast. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to the Black Studies Podcast in 2022. We hope that you have a wonderful holiday and a happy new year, and please stay tuned for the Black Studies podcast in 2023. We'll be back with a second season that explores African and Caribbean philosophy, politics, and pedagogy. Take care, everyone. Thank you.